Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the 66th episode of For What It's Worth. Uh, I am wedging this in today between tasks, and I just want to say this to start off. I'm holding a machete and an inflatable Wayne Newton doll. That's the kind of mood I'm in. This inflatable Wayne Newton doll comes in handy. It's currency in some backwater parts in America, and the machete is just because I mean business. I'm in a bit of a feisty mood today as there's all kinds of incredible stuff happening in the world and also some incredible stuff happening here in the van where I'm at. Uh, It just started with me eating some super sour Scandinavian swimmers from Trader Joe's. And for you gummy bear fans out there, damn you, David Schuster, for getting me started on these. Um... I just ate some sea life shapes, these Scandinavian swimmers, super sour gummy bears from Trader Joe's. And then I was feeling all good about myself because I'm on a sugar high and before the headache starts. And then just accidentally, I turned the bag around and happened to read the ingredients. And you don't, you don't ever want to do that when you're eating gummy bears because you're going to learn about substances that prior were, would have been unknown in your circles. Things like invert sugar. Modified cornstarch, dextrose, yeah, cane sugar, tapioca starch. Just don't, don't, don't read the ingredients if you're going to eat those. Uh, that's my word of advice. So before we get started today, let me put the machete down because I might end up harming you, me, or someone else. And uh, we have to preface this podcast before I get to who is this for. And before I get to the hero of the week, and before I get to the goat of the week, I got to preface this with something. I, I made a YouTube film a while back, and it was about called Dear President or Dear Future President. It was like aspects or traits that I wanted to see in a future president. Not all of them, partial list, you know, and it's a complete joke because this is never going to happen, at least not in my lifetime. But, you know, a guy can dream. And one of the things I said at the very beginning of that film was that I have friends on all different areas of the political spectrum. I have far-right friends, crazy far-right. I have crazy far-left, and I have everyone in between. And one of the things I pride myself on is continuing the dialogue with people, regardless of where their beliefs are in comparison to my own. I think that's how we get through this period that we're in, which is a very dark, dangerous, and dumb, dumb period that we're in. I mean, all-cap exclamation point dumb. But something happened the other day, and I was like, okay, it's not like I don't like this person. It's just that I don't have time for this kind of conversation again. So let me set the table here. Let, let me just, let me start with this. Let's start with a softball. Regardless of your political stance, can you and I agree that there is something called a fact Let's start there. And no, I'm not kidding. I'm not joking because I'll get to the point at the end of this. Is there something called a fact? Not your fact or mine, just the fact. For example, softball. Here we go. Softball. Are you and I on planet Earth? Now, for you a-holes out there who I can guess what side you're leaning on politically that say to me, well, I'm on a chair in my house, so technically I'm not on earth. If that's you, go away, sign off the podcast. You have no business being here. 
But if you're like a normal person who thinks relatively rationally and logically, can you and I agree that it is a fact that you and I are on planet Earth? I do not think there are any astronauts or anyone at the space station listening to this podcast. So I'm assuming that no one in those channels is participating here. The rest of us are just lowly earthlings sitting on some jagged piece of of earth. You and I are on earth. That's a fact. It's not your fact and it's not my fact. There's only one fact and it's you and I are on earth. So that's kind of the baseline. So I'm talking to this person the other day and they asked me about Mar-a-Lago, which I think I'm going to talk about in a minute. And I can probably just skip skip to that. I'll, I'll hit on it again later. But my feeling is that they're probably not going to find a whole lot. you know. And for those of you who somehow missed this story, former President Trump's house, Mar-a-Lago, this awful garish-looking place in South Florida, got raided um, by the Department of Defense, the FBI. They came in because there, was, uh, cl- there were classified materials there. They had been trying to get these materials back from Trump for a year. He and his lawyer signed a letter saying that there were no longer classified documents there. Apparently, that turned out to be not true. And so the FBI raided. We all know this story unless you've somehow been uh, managed to avoid this. And if you have, you're my hero because it's everywhere. It's what everyone's talking about. My guess is that if there is a rumor or reports of classified documents being in places they're not supposed to be, especially the highest level of classified documents, there probably is no choice from those in Department of Defense, FBI, to make a move on those materials. Apparently, there was a rat on the inside of Trump's organization or a snitch that was talking about these materials. Whatever. I don't care. My feeling is that they're probably not going to find a whole lot there, other than the fact that he apparently had some of these documents. They'll return them to the National Archives. And apparently, according to numerous sources within his administration, Trump had this ability to claim that things were his. And he said this in his vernacular all throughout his administration, where he would talk about things like my military and my Congress and my whatever. And when confronted about these materials, he said, no, those are mine. And he wanted to keep them. Now, knowing what we know about him, I'm not super surprised. I think he's a bumbling, clumsy fool who probably had some things in there that he thought was cool, or maybe he could use them later. I don't know. He's, he's, in my opinion, is a kind of a train wreck as a guy, doesn't seem to be super organized, whatever. Again, I don't think they're going to find any massive thing that is going to make, you know, put him under the Espionage Act and he's going to be tried for treason. None of that is ever going to happen. So I'm talking to this person and they ask me what I think is happening at Mar-a-Lago. And I said, I don't know, you know, but there's a couple of things that make me suspicious because one of the things that was rumored to be there was secrets tied to nuclear uh, weaponry and also delivery systems. And that popped up my interest for a couple of reasons. And I'm talking to this person and I said, well, that's inter- if that's true, that's interesting. I don't, again, it doesn't prove anything until they dig, get to the bottom of it. But something happened during his administration that kind of always kind of made me go, wait a minute, how is this, what, what's happening behind the scenes? Trump's chief policy advisor, okay, this is right underneath the president, chief policy advisor was Jared Kushner. And Jared Kushner loves Saudi Arabia, loves him, made trip after trip after trip to Saudi Arabia while he was working for the administration. That's a little bit suspicious to me. 
just as it would be if whatever, a, 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 a senior advisor under Reagan went to Nicaragua 20 or 30 times during the administration. I'd be like, huh, wonder what's going on down there. So I said, well, you know, senior advisor to the president, he ends up in Saudi Arabia. Well, Jared Kushner also has uh, something called the Affinity Partners, which is his fund, his financial fund. An old boy, Jared, went to the Saudi uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is a $680 billion fund, and said, hey, I want a $2 billion loan. I want a $2 billion fund from you guys. The Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund advisors universally said, no way. This is a bad deal. This Kushner is a shady dude. He does not have a good track record. He does not have a good investment record. He does not have the capital to pay this back if it goes wrong, meaning that we're going to have to eat the $2 billion. No, 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 and no across the board. Several days later, the crown prince himself goes to the Saudi sovereign wealth fund and says, I don't care about your reports. I don't care about your opinion. Give him the money. So now Kushner has $2 billion. For what? What's the payoff? What, what is, the, uh, is, is the crown prince getting in return other than telling Trump, so Kushner convinces Trump that, yes, the crown prince ordered the execution and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi in the, in the, in the uh, embassy, but that's no big deal. It's no big deal. So Trump's like, okay, whatever. The crown prince is great. He has tons of money. I like him. They have oil. We need it. Whatever. So now my head is like something's happening behind the scenes. Obviously, this is not limited to the Trump administration. This has historically been part of our political establishment, both parties going back forever. Corruption, greed, special interests, dark money, all of that stuff. So now I'm, my interest is peaked, and I'm explaining this to this other person. And I said, but here's the, the latest wrinkle is that Trump is now involved in Live Golf, which is the alternative professional golf program that popped out of nowhere about a year ago. And there is super bad blood between Live Golf, which is backed by the Saudi government, and the PGA, which is the Professional Golfers of America, or whatever the heck it is. It's the, it's the main professional golf tour. If you leave the PGA and go to Live, there is, you are dead to them forever. There is bad blood and lawsuits and everything else. And Trump is involved in live golf with the Saudi government. Hmm, that's interesting. And oh, by the way, when asked about this during a tournament, a recent tournament, and they said, how can you be working with them after 9-11? That's an insult to all the first responders, an insult to all the people whose family died during 9-11 because 19 of the hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Trump literally looks at the camera and goes, well, nobody knows what happened on 9-11. No one got to the bottom of it. All of these things combine to make me what I would call rather suspicious of the whole Trump-Kushner-Saudi connection. Why would I not be suspicious of that? How many red flags can you have in one story? So as I'm explaining this to this other person, here's what I got in return. And this is where we go back to fact. What is a fact and what is not? Jared Kushner was senior advisor. That's a fact. I didn't make that up. I didn't give him the job. If you Google him, that's what comes up. He spent four years in that role under President Trump. That is not a partisan statement. That is just a fact. Donald Trump was the president. Fact. Jared Kushner, senior advisor. Fact. Jared Kushner, affinity. Fact. Got a $2 million loan. Fact. 
The Sovereign Wealth Board voted against it. Fact. The Crown Prince overruled. Fact. All of these things. This is not debatable. This is what happened. So at the end of this story, this person's response was, Hunter Biden had an affair. And I was like, what? Hunter Biden had an affair. And I just thought right there, that was it for me. I thought, I don't have time for this. Like if we want to have a dialogue about what's happening here. And I was like, I said, Hunter Biden never had a role in the government. And this person, this is what I finally ended. I was like, okay, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. This person said, you have your facts and I have mine insinuating that Hunter Biden was somehow miraculously part of the government, had an official government role, and the fact that he had an affair was the the one thing that they could counter the suspicion of the Trump-Kushner-Saudi situation, which, again, I don't know what the final thing is, but I don't know. I'm suspicious of that. There's a lot of uh, red flags in that story. Their response was Hunter Biden had an affair. Throw out the fact that Trump, we know, has had numerous affairs. I don't think this person, for one second, has a clue. They didn't know that Kushner was senior advisor. This is a hardcore, a person who has very, very devout, right-wing Republican beliefs set in stone. Did not know that Trump, uh, that Kushner was senior advisor. Didn't know he had the sovereign, his affinity fund. Didn't know he got the loan. Didn't know anything about this story whatsoever. Didn't know about Live Golf. Didn't know about the comment about the, uh, no one knowing about 9-11. Didn't know any of it. Completely and utterly uninformed. And their response was, Hunter Biden had an affair. And I thought, that's it. Done. Click over. Uh, I don't have time. It's not like I don't like this person. I would still talk to this person in a heartbeat. And I'm sure I will again at some point. But I was like, what am I doing? Like wasting my time in these conversations with that level of, I don't know what you want to call it, disconnectedness, misinformation, uninformed, uninterested, not curious, uneducated, I don't know, baffling. And so I just want to start this podcast, and I know I'm 14 minutes in. There is such a thing as fact, and it's not your fact or my fact. It's just the fact. And that's the baseline from which we have to operate. Otherwise, we are, I don't know, we're, we have, our intelligence level is on par with the gummy bear. So let's move on. Who is this podcast for? If you're new here and this is the first time you listen to it, you're probably like, oh, this is a political podcast. It's not. We got all kinds of topics. Politics are one of just many. But this podcast is for anyone who is a consistent viewer of the slap fighting championships. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, stop what you're doing right now. Go to, go to YouTube and look up slap fighting, S-L-A-P, slap fighting. Imagine two of the biggest men you've ever seen in your life standing across fr- from each other with a small table in between. And one person on one side puts his hand up against the face of the other guy, practices a couple of practice swings, and then hauls off and slaps the other person as hard as they possibly can. And t- one of two things happens. The guy doesn't move and has a look of like, now I'm really going to kill you, or he gets knocked out. I would change the name of this to the CTE cup, which is the CTE is the disease affecting a lot of NFL players, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, where you get the the protein buildup in your brain and then you have erratic behavior and then you die. 
it's from getting hit in the head. And these, it's men, women, slap fighting. I didn't know this was a thing. And there are like celebrities and professional athletes in attendance at this. And guys are literally getting knocked out again and again and again. How this is getting sanctioned anywhere, I don't know. But wherever it's getting sanctioned, I want to live there. That's my kind of community. Because slap fighting, again, if you haven't seen it, uh, how do you train for it? I don't know. Just like your wife take a two-by-four and just crack you on the side of the head two or three times a day. It's fascinating. If you like slap fighting, this podcast is for you. The hero of the week, and she might have been on my list a long time ago. I was too lazy to look it up, and I don't keep a catalog of all this. But she passed away, Letizia Battaglia. And this was a photographer. And the reason I'm bringing her up, and she's the hero of the week, and it's L-E-T-I-Z-I-A, Letizia. Horrible pronunciation on my part. I apologize. Battaglia. I went to a show at Perpignan de Visa pour la Mage years ago. They had put an exhibition of her work on. She was a photographer that worked in Sicily covering the mafia. And for all of you snowflakes out there, all of you photographers who whine and moan about having to work and you don't really work and you sit around in cafes with your laptop listening to music and drinking coffee and thinking, thinking you're working and maybe you make a YouTube film and you spend 12 days trying to drive traffic to it so you'll go viral, you are a snowflake. If you want to know what it's like for a real photographer and someone to put it on the line on a daily basis, look at Letizia Battaglia's work. This is not easy. She was getting threats from the mafia. And oh, by the way, the mafia tends to follow through. You know, if you look at Borsellino and Falcone, the two uh, anti-mob prosecutors that were executed, blown up in Sicily back in the day, they had received threats, you know, and their security detail said, look, if you guys do the same thing, if you establish any kind of pattern, you're dead. Because they will get you. And lo and behold, they did. Because both of those guys, uh, Falcone and Borsellino, said, I'm not going to change my life for the mob. Well, guess what? Didn't end well. A friend, uh, friend of mine actually made some pictures of those guys, famous pictures in Sicily, and also was the first guy on the scene in both instances when they were both killed in different places in different times. He just happened to be there. It's kind of a remarkable story in itself. But Letizia Battaglia is my hero of the week. And she's been gone for a while now. The work lives on. But the testament and fortitude is what I want to get across. Because I told you I was feisty this week. Feisty. I got no patience for lazy people. None. If you are lazy, I don't want anything to do with you. Because there's too much to do in life. There's too much to learn. There's too much to explore. You got to go for it. You, gotta put, you literally got to put your right foot on the floor and slip your left foot off the clutch. Just slip it off and punch it. That's how you want to live your life. And she was a badass. She never backed down. She kept working in the midst of all the threats. And they never got her. Goat of the week. Again, we always have goat. I don't mean greatest of all time. I mean ass. I mean donkey. I mean burrow of the week. Who, who's made a, a mess of things? Uh, Mafia is going to make a, make a little hit come back in here. But let's go Tanzania off the bat. For, for putting high-speed internet on Kilimanjaro so climbers could Instagram their climb up. How disconnected do you have to be to not only do this, but then be honest about why you're doing it? Talk about douchebags. You know how many people in Africa do not have access to internet? Tons. 
and you're going to put it in so a bunch of foreign climbers can Instagram their tr their climbs up Kilimanjaro, which, by the way, doesn't have snow anymore. The glacier melted. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Climate deniers. Well, we don't need that snow up there. So it's easier to climb the mountain now than it's ever been. And, oh, yeah, we need Internet so these idiots from overseas can Instagram their trips up. I, it, it just like Tanzania, you're dead to me. I don't want to go there. Don't connect for outsiders. You've got a population, and not just in Tanzania, but tons of places in Africa are struggling to get internet. That rubs me the wrong way. And oh, by the way, what about the porters? What about the ones doing the hard work? What about them in Instagramming? No mention of that. No mention of the porters. Just the foreigners coming in to climb Kilimanjaro. Disgusting. Okay. Mafia is buying pills from ISIS. 40 metric tons of pills from 84 million pills, by the way. That's 40, apparently 84 million pills equals 40 metric tons of pills. That seems like a lot. I'm not a math guy. Seems like a lot of pills. More than I've taken this week and more than I've eaten in, in the weight of gummy bears. By the way, what you're hearing is rain on the van. We are finally getting a little bit of rain here in Maine. Rain in Maine is mainly on the plain. It's raining. There is a severe drought here and Massachusetts as well. The majority of the state of Massachusetts is in extreme drought. Um, oddly enough, I keep running into people here who are like, water's never a problem. And then we've got extreme drought here. So Maine is by far the driest I've ever seen it. The house that I'm sitting in front of, the lawn, is normally emerald green all summer long. It's brown. Hillsides are brown. Lakes and rivers are very low. In fact, I went to someone's house the other day thinking I was going to put my canoe in, and there was 30 feet of muck between their, their dock and the water, so there was no way to actually get to the surface of the lake. It's pretty bad, so this rain is good, and you get a little extra flavor here in the van. So uh, I, the mafia is buying dope from ISIS. I don't, if I was concocting a, a plan of evil, I would probably have the mafia and ISIS in there, but I would never know how to connect them. And they did it on their own. So on one hand, it's impressive. Uh, but two, that's kind of, you, you rock it into go to the weak territory. So that's where we are. Let's start with the points, right? You know, we're 22.35 in, 22.37 and counting of just pure dynamite. Pure dynamite. Point number one, I am busier, potentially busier than I have ever been in my 12 years at Blurb. We have a massive team now in the marketing side, and it is firing. And what's interesting is that it's made my life a little bit easier in some ways because I don't have to polish things, and, and polish is a stretch. For any, anybody who's seen anything that I put out, polished is not a word that I would associate with it. But I was having to do things to the content and then send it to Blurb, and now I don't have to. All I have to do is create the main thing and then send it. And we have designers and copy editors and and. Uh, graphic designers who are taking it and polishing it, putting bumpers and just amazing stuff. I saw something the other day, which was an interview I had done with Michelle Dunmarsh, and I saw the trailer on Twitter, and I looked at it, and I was like, who is that? And then I, it took me a second. I was like, that's me. It's me in that. And that was all done by the, 
by the marketing team on the backside in Blurb. So it is absolutely cranking. I have potential trips coming up. Paris, London, Sydney, Toronto, Lima. And that's just right now. Tomorrow I have a huge meeting about Paris, Photo London, Sydney, when that would happen, when not. I don't think I'm going to go to Paris. I think I talked them out of it because I don't think that's the best event for us to do first. But Photo London in the spring might be on the table and Sydney in the spring summer might be on the table. But the first point I want to talk about is my workshops because I literally five minutes before I got on this podcast, I, I solidified Peru for the end of 2023. So end of September, beginning of October of 2023, I will be doing a trip with Adam Weintraub, who's my friend who I teach with in Peru. He's married to a Cuscanian woman. Uh, he's lived in Cusco for 20 something years, also lives in Seattle, goes back and forth. And Adam and I taught down there. He's taught a, a zillion times. He has an incredible roster of instructors. He knows Peru as, as well as anyone I know. Um, Adam is an amazing guy. He's a photographer, a publisher. He also founded the, what's called Museo del Pisco, the Pisco Museums, which I believe are now in Cusco, Lima, and Arequipa. Or not Arequipa, but there may be another one. I can't remember where the third one is. Anyway, he sent me an itinerary, potential in, uh, itinerary. It's called the Streets of Latin America, Peru. And we are going to start in Lima. We're going to Arequipa. We're going to Cusco. We're going, and at the end, we're going to Machu Picchu. And what I love about this is that we are in places long enough to, to really make some, some cool work in, and not feel rushed, but we're also hitting what I would call three or four distinctive spacing. So t what I, when I think of Lima, I think of tighter spaces. Any, any major city and any major Latin American city in particular, you're tight, loud, close, um, compact, Although the city is not compact, it's huge, but you're, it's tight. It's a big city, and you're moving in and out of these neighborhoods in classic like street style of photography. And then Arequipa is a step back. I would call Arequipa middle distance, where it's a beautiful city. I was just looking at some of the images I made there last time, and I was like, God, I just forgot how cool Arequipa is. And the outskirts of Arequipa are my, personally, my absolute favorite spacing of all which is that middle distance spacing i think and then we move on to cusco and cusco is also that middle distance but also the periphery of cusco gives you the distant the vast spacing which i think is a nice mix-up so we're going from tight to middle to vast and then machu picchu is its own thing i've been there now three times i mean i've been up the mountain probably seven or eight times so i've been multiple times on each trip that i've been there i love it when it's packed because it just gives you a different style of image with many more humans. And you just see bizarre stuff when people go to Machu Picchu. But I've also seen it completely deserted. And I like both of them. So I'm just going to build. Peru is exotic. It is very, very exotic. What you see from, from a big urban Latin city like Lima to a, to a city like Cusco. And the history of Cusco is sort of the central uh, focal city in that entire culture. And then the Machu Picchu and the landscape. The landscape is insane. I remember taking the train from, God, I can't remember. It was to, uh, I think it was from Ollantaytambo to uh, Aguas Calientes, which is at the bottom of the mountain of Machu Picchu. And the train had these little kind of windows up on the edges of the top of the car, like the old VW vans had. And I'm sitting there 
looking out this window at what I thought was the top of the Andes, the mountains around us. And then I realized looking out the window in the top of the train that there was a whole nother range above what I was looking at. And the Andes are just daunting. They are so fantastic. So Peru is on. And also in the spring of next year, end of May to the beginning of June, two more trips to Albania with slight twists. So the northern trip that we're doing in Albania, we've changed the locations and the curriculum a little bit. And I'm stoked because I get to see the other side of the mountain range from Valbona. We're going to be actually going to Theth. And there's a classic hike between Theth and Valbona that a lot of people go to Albania specifically to do. And so I'm stoked about that. The northern trip is amazing. And then we're also doing uh, the southern trip again, which blew me away because last year I had this weird preconceived idea of what the south of Albania was going to look like. And I was completely wrong. Albania has more mountains than you can possibly imagine. There are massive mountain ranges all over that country. I assume because the north was so mountainous that the south would be flat. Wrong. Public school kid, wrong. So those workshops are going. Uh, Albania is on WideAnglePhototours.com, and um, I will let everybody know when the Peru thing goes live. But I'm stoked. It's been a few years since I've been to Latin America. I Well, no, that's not true. I went to Sea of Cortez last, a few months ago, but um, down in South America. I haven't been there in a few years, and I absolutely love Latin America. I think it is the forgotten continent to many Americans. People go to Europe all the time. They go to Asia, but they often don't go south. And I am a huge fan of the Americas. I am a huge fan of how it's challenging. You know, Peru is challenging. Bolivia is challenging. It's high altitude. It's weather. It's, you know, I don't know. It's just a, an absolute, as a photographer, there is nothing better in my mind. So that's where we're at on my workshops. Um, point number two is <clears throat> I just finished is about books. I just finished the Oppenheimer bio. That's like 600 pages. So you got to kind of want that book and it's rather dense, but if you're interested in that story and the history of atomic energy and the bomb and McCarthyism and the insanity that went on because Louis Strauss hated Oppenheimer and what the damage that one guy can do inside the U S government, kind of fascinating, loved it. Finished it, took 30-some pages of notes on that baby. Um, wonderful book. So I'm, I was sort of down a book. And on my Kindle, I'm reading this thing called The Girl with the Leica, which is about Gerda Taro, who was um, Robert Kappa's girlfriend, who's from Germany but lived in France and got killed covering the Spanish Civil War. And this book is really interesting. And yes, the rain is picking up. The book is really interesting because... It tells her story through the friends of hers that were peripheral to the to the event. So it tells her story through Kappa and through other boyfriends of hers and through girlfriends of hers. And I think it's really well done. I'm about halfway through it, but it's on my Kindle. And because I'm in one place right now, I don't really need my Kindle. So I went to the library today and I didn't check books out because I'm not going to be here much longer. And they have a used bookstore in the library. So I, I checked out a book, which is called Women Watching. And it is, um, it's, it, Women Watching is the title. And the subtitle is Louise de Caroline, K-I-R-I-L-I-N-E, Lawrence, and the Songbirds of Pamisi Bay. And it looks absolutely fantastic. I also got 
Shisaku Endo's book, The Silence, or just Silence, which is made into a movie with Liam Neeson and Adam Driver and somebody else. That looked great. And I love, love Japanese literature and, and Japanese authors, Japanese photographers, too. I really, I love everything about Japan, and I've never been there. Then, classic, I got a book called The Sea Around Us by Rachel Carson. And if you don't know Rachel Carson, she wrote a book called Silent Spring and is often given credit for the kickstarting the entire environmental movement in the United States, which then transferred overseas and around the world. Rachel Carson, Silent Spring is her most famous book, but I got The Sea Around Us, which looks pretty cool. And it's this classic old hardcover from the library, which I bought. Then I got The Private Lives of Garden Birds, because I'm a geek and I'm birding now. Then I got Windows on the World, 50 Writers, 50 Views. And this is amazing, and I got it because the book itself, the materials, the cover is vellum. And it's a vellum wrap with, with like an embossed copy that bleeds through onto the hardcover of the book, which is like a hand-done illustration. It's gorgeous. And, I, and the... the book material I was just going to buy it strictly for the book material but in the book design but I realized like 50 writers 50 views that sounds pretty good to me because man I love writing did I tell you that okay and then I got this amazing book about a guy I've never heard of and it's called Bush Pilot Angler and it's about Lee Wolf and he apparently is the world's pre was I don't know if he's still around the world's premier salmon fisherman, but he was also an incredible aviator that would fly himself in his canoe back to these like remote places to go fishing. And I hate him because if I had uh, the ability to fly and I had money to buy aviation fuel and I had a map and, and was relatively certain I wouldn't crash, I would probably be doing the same thing because I love remote backcountry fishing that you access through float plane. It's wonderful. And the last book I got was called Fossil Men. And um, The Quest for the Oldest Skeleton and the Origins of Humankind by Kermit Pattison. And I just love that kind of stuff. As you can see, I don't get out much. I'm not cool. I don't go to parties. I don't get invited to the cool people. Hipsters from Brooklyn do not like me. They do not want to hang out with me. They think I'm old and stodgy and probably just not cool. And I ride a bike that doesn't have a Jones bar in a basket. You know, it doesn't, my, my tires aren't right for the Brooklyn hipsters to like me or want me. That's just the way it is. And so I instead hide in the world of books because books force you to dive into your imagination. And I can't think anything, I can't think of anything better. Okay, point number three. Uh, you know how America has a tendency to promote herself as being the best at everything all the time the most sophisticated the most avant-garde the most loyal the most pure always the good person the good person in the white hat not the bad person in the black hat we love to talk trash about how sophisticated we are compared to the rest of you scum from other countries, right? Our politicians are famous for doing this. Not so much the president. Like, the president's not going to go up and just tr universally trash everyone else, unless you're maybe Trump, who I forget what he called, um, shithole countries. That was what Trump talked about, right? Again, bumbling, clueless guy, blurts that out, 
not so good. But most of the time, the president has to be at least remotely diplomatic because that pays dividends in the long run. It does. But anytime you go thinking that we're super sophisticated, I just want you to remember one thing. That at one point in time, in the not-too-distant past, the pinnacle of creation in America was the Trucker movie. The Trucker movie. T-R-U-C-K-E-R. The Trucker movies of the 1970s, that was the pinnacle of our culture and society. They were wildly popular films. They created an entire subculture of people who were like, there's nothing better than trucker films. Let me just give you some titles here. Convoy, Chris Christopherson and uh, what's, her, uh, what's her name? Allie McGraw, who was once with Steve McQueen, who lives in Santa Fe, by the way, who apparently is very nice. Allie McGraw, Chris Christopherson in Convoy. If you haven't seen that little beauty, take some time, treat yourself. I've seen it a hundred times. I actually love that movie. Uh, for a variety of reasons. But let's face it, it's a movie about truckers. Breaker Breaker with Chuck Norris, which, by the way, is now on either Netflix or Amazon Prime. Oh, yeah. Get the family together. Get Grandma and Grandpa in there. Saddle them up with some bourbon and some popcorn and get ready because if you're looking for a little redneck tussle and, and one of the worst movies of all time, Breaker Breaker with Chuck Norris is right there. Trucker movie. I mean, bad any way you look at it. How about White Line Fever? How about Smoking the Bandit 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7? And yes, there are seven films in the Smoking the Bandit series. People, I knew people who changed their life because of Smoking the Bandit. I knew people in rural Indiana who basically gave up every hope, ditched their families, quit their jobs, and sunk every penny they had into a 6.6 crossfire injection black Trans Am, and they tried to be the bandit. This is the level of sophistication that we have. This is a giant chunk of America. So when you look and you consider what's happening, like at the high levels of our political establishment, at the high levels of our foreign policy, our domestic policy, when you think about corruption that's happening and the greed that's happening, just think, we're a nation of people who love trucker movies. The trucker movies. Even Convoy, like I said, huge fan, not exactly a pinnacle of, of higher learning. But just think. That's where we are. That's who we really are. And look, I prefer to deal with who we really are instead of propagating this idea that we're a bunch of slick sophisticates. We're not. I'm not. I know. Hard to believe. Okay, point number four. Ooh, I'm getting creatively restless when it comes to the camera. So, yes, I have Fuji X-T2s. I have a Fuji X-T4. I have, what else do I have? I have a zillion other cameras, as you all know. I got film cameras coming out my ears. I got digital cameras coming out my ears. But I still feel like I'm missing something. And I don't know what. But I, a lot of people have been asking me questions like, oh, what are you going to get? You're going to get the new Sony. You're going to get the Nikon. You're going to get whatever. Odds are I will probably stay with Fuji. Because eventually Fuji's going to come out with something that is going to really make me go, oh, that's the camera I've been waiting for. It's not there right now. I think the, the GFX stuff is just too big and bulky and slow, even though that 50 megapixel rangefinder version version 
I would be very curious about taking that to Albania or Peru and seeing if I could make a body of work with that. That would be interesting. But it's still, I don't own one, and am I going to go drop that kind of coin on it? Absolutely not. The only wrinkle to this would be if Leica's Q3 comes out and it's the 35 millimeter, then I would probably buy that and sell a bunch of my old Fuji stuff. And I have a sinking suspicion that that camera I would love. And here's the other thing, which is not a, a point, but it should be a point on its own. I, be, I think about this a lot because I make, as you know, a f fairly wide range of content. I write stuff. I do motion for myself and for Blurb. I do still for myself and for Blurb. I do writing for Blurb and myself. I do a lot of writing for other people. I'm constantly, you know, the podcast, Shifter, all that stuff. Um, but I love stills and writing. You know, stills sound, stills and writing. Those are my two favorite combinations and I'm not in love with the new hybrid cameras like the Fuji came out the X-H2 I don't really want one of those because I don't think that that's going to work for my video needs I think the cameras I already have the Sony a7C will work fine for the video stuff that I need to do I'm not going to be Mr. Cinematic running around with a gimbal and shooting like I don't know cityscape somewhere it's not me what I'm primarily interested in making is still photographs, stills. And that's where a camera like the X Q3, if it comes out and it's the 60 megapixel, has a little better stabilization, a little better autofocus, that camera, and it's also a 35, which I don't think is going to happen, but hypothetically it would come out and I could probably get used to the 28, whatever. All I'm saying is odds are I'll stick with Fuji unless the Leica wrinkle comes in. Okay, point number five, and this is a good one. Good one. Get ready. Get your pens ready. I have a new pen. I'm sorry, Fisher Space Pen. I still have you. I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to travel with you. You're still going to be in my bag on a daily basis, Fisher Space Pen. I do. I love the Fisher Space Pen. It's been great so far, and I've taken it everywhere. I've used it every day since I bought it, which is probably six months ago. I've used it every single day. But there's a new sheriff in town, and his name is the Uni Jetstream. Yeah, the Uni, or the, what, Uni, which is a, a, a company, a subsidiary of the Mitsubishi Pencil Company out of Japan. Uni Jetstream. Cool name. The name just makes you want to <clears throat> get on a private jet and go to Vegas and do something horrible. The Uni Jetstream is a ballpoint, and when I looked up, when I googled best ballpoint pens, this baby was on everyone's list. Everyone. And here's the crazy part. This is not an expensive pen at all. This is an inexpensive pen. I think you can get a pen for $2 and something. Um, not expensive. I bought one. And accidentally, whoever I bought it from, I don't remember who I bought it from, they, accident they accidentally sent me 10. So I got a box of these things. Now, I should have looked up what makes this pen so different. It, it does have, where the, where the actual uh, pen refill goes in and out of the pen, there's a double system in there that looks space age. It's high tech. Like there's a team of people in white lab coats and clean suits working on this. But the, the kind of ink that's in the pen and how effortlessly this pen rolls. And that's the difference between this pen and the space pen. 
Number one, the point on this is finer than the space pen. Even with this fine point space pen, it's still wider, broader, larger diameter than the than the 0.7 point on the Uni Jetstream. The Jetstream flows like mad. I have used it every day since I got it, and I have been on a writing spree. I just I just started the fourth journal since I left on May 11th. I haven't been home. I've been gone since May 11th. Have not been home. I just started my fourth journal since departing on May 11th, and I am just ripping through four, five, six, seven pages a day with this pen. It is absolutely fantastic. I've written all of my writing assignments for Blurb, and then I'm writing for a piece for Ross Society's new magazine. I wrote them all longhand first with the Uni Jetstream in my journal while I was sitting outside somewhere just trying to hack through my, my to-do list. But I'm, I'm, I'm on board, Uni Jetstream. If I could get a T-shirt and a hat uh, and fly the team colors, I would. I don't know if Uni does that. And they, if they do, they probably don't know me and they probably wouldn't send me anything. Because as I was, uh, as someone explained to me earlier this month, Someone said to me, I met, someone I didn't know said to me, oh, hey, I love your channel. I love your YouTube channel. It's so good, but you are way too honest to be an influencer. So I probably can't be an influencer for Uni Jetstream either. Okay, point number six, I have yet to get COVID. And um, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were one of these um, uppity folks who just couldn't be bothered with a mask anymore. Wealthy, white Living here in New England, there are many of these folks. And they were just so sophisticated and cool and wealthy. And COVID is over and I've got nothing to do with this anymore because whatever, I don't care. And they said to me, why am I still wearing a mask? And I said, because our healthcare workers have asked me to. And this person literally did not say a word. They just looked at me, and I could tell in five seconds they had never once thought of anyone else beside themselves. And I said, yes, I just heard an interview with a local healthcare worker who said that people like you are a slap in their face, people who cannot be bothered. 43,000 people in hospitals in America with COVID, 400 deaths a day, and 110,000 new cases a day. And who's taking the brunt of that? The American healthcare worker who said, for you uppity folks out there who can't be bothered by a mask, F you. They took a beating over the last two and a half years. One of the facilities in Santa Fe went from 48 full-time nurses to six because people had had enough. And they feel like you and I don't care. And frankly, I don't think we do. I do. I'm wearing a mask. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. If I get sick and end up in the hospital, some poor person has to take care of me because I couldn't be bothered by a mask. And uh, I just wanted to say that for the 10,000th time that, holy cow, it's like I know more people with COVID now than at any point during the pandemic. Let, let's, let's sink that in. More people in the hospital today, more deaths than a year ago. So, oops. Oops, so much for it being over and just the misinformation flying around. And again, sure, odds are I'm double, double, I'm vaxxed and I'm double boosted. Odds are if I get it, symptoms would be mild. But you know what? I don't know. I have a compromised immune system. So what it does to me, I don't really know. I have plenty of friends who have long COVID who are having difficulty getting treatment because doctors are like, I don't want to touch it. 
It's way too comprehensive, too time-consuming. We don't have a protocol for it. I can't make money off of this. I don't want to touch it. And so my friends with long COVID are frustrated. I don't want to be one of them. Okay, point number seven. As I mentioned before, Mar-a-Lago in Boston speak. Mar-a-Lago, the whatever you want to call it. Um, You know, I've never been to Mar-a-Lago. I don't really have any desire to go there. Uh, There are parts of South Florida that I absolutely love. I think South Florida is a very interesting culture. I love the Keys. I love the water. I love um, parts of Miami are fascinating. I think it's a cool place. Um, Mar-a-Lago is, is, you might as well put it on the same list as country clubs in general. I do not like country clubs. I don't like golfing. I don't like golf courses. Nothing about that, that environment I like. So Mar-a-Lago to me just looks like an eyesore. It looks like an eyesore. I don't know, no, no desire to go there. As you know, I'm not a Trump fan. I don't think Trump is a Republican. He never was. He never will be. He's just kind of a guy that's out for himself. But my guess, this whole investigation into his uh, top secret stuff is a, is probably not going to reveal a whole lot. I think I have crazy friends on the left who think this is it. He's going to, he's going down on the Espionage Act, and they're going to put him in jail. How would you even do that? How would you put an ex-president in prison? You'd have to build—it'd be the Pablo Escobar thing. You'd have to build him his own place because Secret Service would have to be in prison with him. He has Secret Service protection for the rest of his life. I'm sitting in Maine, close to Walker Point. When I ride the T-Dub— along Ocean Drive that cuts right next to, to uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Walker Point, the Bush compound. There's a security gate in the front, and there's a black SUV blocking the driveway half the time, like at a diagonal. They don't screw around. Like, they got, they got protection their whole life. So how would you even put him in jail? So I just don't think much is going to come of it. Okay, N- point number eight. I finally found a YouTube channel about photography that I absolutely love. And here's the twist. What the guy talks about, I have no interest in whatsoever. There is, a, there is a channel on YouTube called Camera Conspiracies, and I have a sinking suspicion the reason I like him is he's Canadian. I think he's Canadian. I don't know for sure. I could have looked it up, but I didn't because I'm lazy. But the guy has a little bit of an accent, and I'm almost positive he's from north of the border. He's from the Great White North, which we're going to invade any day now. Trust me. Camera Conspiracies. You know why I love this guy? And, and, and I saw five minutes of a film he did that was comparing something about the Fuji X-T4 and the new X-H2. And here's the thing. I don't care. I don't care about the X-H2 and whether it compares to the X-T4. I don't. I have an X-T4. I don't care anything about it. I had a blast watching this guy. He has a fantastic sense of humor. He wears a tank top and sandals. He does. And then he has this bumper at the front of him, like, jumping while he's shooting, jumping sideways in slow motion while he's shooting. And there's, like, an alien creature on the screen and, like, a Jedi or something and an arrow that shoots into him. And I was like, I love this guy. I love him. And I actually think that the films he's doing are probably relevant in terms of the tech aspect of it. But, again, I'm such a Luddite when it comes to that stuff, and I don't really care. But... I thought it was a thoroughly enjoyable uh, thing to watch, and I was just stoked because so much of camera stuff on YouTube 
is either wildly boring because it's again talking about menus and like this what 50 millimeter lens is better and they review like eight lenses in a row and i'm like who effing cares and then the images they show are are like of a fountain in the park and i'm like give me an effing break man who cares apparently a lot of people do because those films get tons or it's some hipster guy who doesn't seem to know anything about actual photography or the history talking and shooting and doing stuff. And I'm like, I get it. They're not hurting anybody. I know I know lots of other people like these, but for me, it's just a total letdown. I have such a hard time finding valuable content on YouTube, at least in regard to photography. In regards to my Honda upcoming Honda C300 CRFL rally, um, yes, I'm going to get the rally, rally Raid Stage 2 suspension upgrade. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get my... Uh, my uh, hand covers. I'm going to get a tiny rack for the back so that I can put my soft back, soft packs on the back. You know, I got some, I got some upgrades to do. The suspension on that bike and the fact that I'm going to have to buy a Rally Raid Stage Two suspension for that bike is annoying because everybody knows how bad that suspension is. And yes, I would have paid 10% more. On, on the bike new to get it with a decent suspension, but I don't have to do all that. But r- there's plenty of good information about the Honda on YouTube. Photography, whole nother story. I can't do it. And oh man, I didn't, I didn't share this before. I heard a story. One of my students took a workshop from one of these YouTubers that went sideways in a major way. I could not, I, he's telling me this story. He's telling us, all these other students, a story. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And immediately someone goes, you got your money back, right? He's like, no, I never did get my money back. I was like, holy crap. That would never happen at my workshops. And if it did, you'd get your money back. That's just crazy. Okay, point number nine. I'm sorry, Tour de France. Nairo Quintana popped for drugs at the Tour de France. And his results are taken away from the Tour de France. But yet he started what is it, the Vuelta? He started the Vuelta two days ago. Um, and this is bizarre. This is where we're at here, people, in the world of doping and cycling. So Nairo Quintana, Nairo Quintana who I believe is Colombian or Ecuadorian, um, amazing climber, little guy, had uh, fantastic results in the past. Um, you know, when it comes to doping, I'm suspicious of all these guys, just based on history. I don't know why I wouldn't be. Nairo gets popped for tramadol. And so they take away his results. But here's the deal. This is funky. Tramadol. Tramadol is a pain reliever. It's not a performance-enhancing drug. Or is it? Because, you know, he didn't get popped for EPO or Sira. He got popped for tramadol. But here's the thing. Tramadol is a pain reliever. My mother takes tramadol for the pain in her shoulders. When my buddy had his hip replaced, they had him on tramadol. But... Here's the thing. Yes, it doesn't increase your performance, but if you're injured and you take it and it masks the pain and allows you to continue, then is it a, a performance-enhancing drug? Anyway, it's not. It's on one uh, banned substance list. It's not the UCI's list. It's the other one. But anyway, they popped him and they took away his Tour de France results. So... That's a bit bizarre to me, but it, and, and, it's, and it kind of speaks to the contradiction in sport as to what these things are. Like, to me, I don't see Tramadol as a performance enhancer, and I don't know why that would be on a banned list compared to, 
you know, something like EPO, where obviously it's going to, it's going to affect your performance. But um, anyway, that's the way it sits right now. And poor Nairo had his, um, you know, he had a couple of, couple of epic cracker days up on, on this tour. So it's gone. Okay. Two more things. Uh, This is point number 10, I believe. I'm sitting here in Maine, neighbor across the street. When I first got here a couple of months ago, um, he was kind enough to allow me to leave the T-Dub in his garage while I was in Albania, and, and I left it plugged in. Super, super, super nice guy. And so I go to pick up the T-Dub. This was, again, a couple of months ago. And he's like, hey, um, you want some moose meat? And I was like, huh? And he goes, you want some moose? And I said, I've never had moose. And he opens up the freezer in his garage, a sizable freezer, and says, I've been eating on this one for a long time, and this freezer is still filled with meat. And, uh, you know, a moose is a pretty sizable creature. So he said, look, here's some hamburger and here's some steaks, some strip steaks, moose. I take them. They're frozen. I leave them. A couple, like a month or a, a couple of days later, I cook the hamburger, the moose meat hamburger. And it is absolutely divine. It, there is no fat whatsoever. It is not gamey. And it has what I would almost describe as a floral flavor to it. I couldn't believe how good this was. I forgot about the strip steaks until two days ago. And my wife says, hey, you got those moose steaks in there. And we were heading out the door. And I said, okay, leave them on the counter. Let's, let's thaw them out and I'll cook them. And I cooked them last night. Holy crap. It is absolutely fantastic. Now, I screwed up a little bit because I overcooked them a tiny bit. And the rub on moose is if you overcook it, it gets a little tough. And mine wasn't, you know, too tough to eat or anything like that. But I could have definitely backed off. And I hadn't cooked it before, and I wasn't sure. And I'm trying to get that center temperature to 140. And moose can carry, like, trichinosis. And so you, if you—this this animal was actually tested before they ate any of it. So I knew that the animal had been tested and didn't have trichinosis. So it was safe to eat. And if you don't know, you're supposed to cook the internal temperature to 160. But so I put it in the stove and I roasted it. And then I took it out and I finished it in a skillet with a little butter on a high heat. Holy crap. If you haven't had moose meat, if you are a meat eater and you have not had this, my advice is to go bag one of these suckers. I mean, get out there, put your Rambo John Jay outfit on and just go hammer one of these things. Now, getting a moose permit, a moose tag is not easy. The guy who gave me the meat had tried for 40 years, four zero years to get a moose tag and never got one until this year. The guy up the street who doesn't hunt was like, yeah, I'll put my name in the hat. What the heck? He nailed it on the first year. So there's no rhyme or reason, total luck. He got it. He got this moose. It is an absolutely fantastic meat if you're into eating meat. Okay, last point. As you know, I do uh, a fair amount of exercise. I've ridden, I think, about 1,500 miles since I've been in Maine on my bicycle. Maybe not quite that much. Let me think about that. 30. No, no, it's less than that. Um, but I've ridden, you know, three days a week. I probably ride 100 to 120 miles a week on the bike. And I run until I blew out my calf. I was running three days a week. Now I'm back to running again after giving it uh, some time off. I normally run in Hoka's, H-O-K-A. And Hoka's were the brand that sort of took the minimal running movement and just basically said, F you, pal, and went the other way. Running on Hoka's is like strapping a sofa 
to your feet. And they're fantastic. I really like them. They're stable. I have the three-quarter top Gore-Tex waterproof because of the winter in Santa Fe. I use them in the snow and the mud, and my feet don't get wet, and I can hike in them, run in them. They last a long time. They're big and clunky looking, but they're super light. So I like them. And I bought it, but they're too big to fit in my suitcase. Like when I went to Albania, I would have needed a separate bag for my Hoka three-quarter Speedgoat 4 Gore-Tex model. They're just too big. So I went out, and on a whim, I bought a shoe called a Superior 5 from Ultra. And Ultra is all about minimal shoes. They don't only make minimal shoes, but they make some. And they're also about the really wide toe box and the zero drop. And Ultra in the trail running community is really big. Hoka's big, Ultra's big, you know, uh, Solomon, those companies. I'd had Ultras before and didn't love them. Didn't love them. Gave them away. Gave them to somebody, a friend of mine. And then at the last minute, I go to REI and I'm like, I need a pair of shoes that I can run in and hike in that are tiny, that fit in my suitcase. So I found this Ultra Superior 5. And I'm telling you, wait a minute, I got to read this thing. What does it say on the side? Max Trag on the sole, Max Trag. So inside, these shoes are fantastic, which is why I'm telling you about. I've been running in these on the pavement, and these are kind of a minimal shoe from Ultra. I thought I would be miserable going from the Hoka to these running, but I'm not. I love these things. I've been running in them. The tongue of the shoe is sewn into the shoe itself completely on one side and partially on the other. So the tongue does not move. It doesn't slide one way or another. All of the tongues in all of my shoes slide, and it drives me crazy. These don't. There is a mesh-breathable upper portion of this and a rubber, almost like climbing shoe toe box around the front. And I tell you, when I was in Albania, I used these on all the long hikes we did on really rocky terrain, and single track trail and across water and everything else, they were fantastic hiking. I never had any pain in my feet, nothing. I never rolled my ankle. I'm running in them now. And they have this like insert inside the sole that even though they're minimal shoes, it's almost like this band in the middle of the sole that no matter how rocky it is or pointy or jagged or whatever I'm running on, never bothers the bottom of my foot. So if you are a runner or a hiker and you're looking for a minimalist shoe, the Ultra Superior 5, um, I totally love. And on a side point, the last thing I'm going to say on this podcast, there's another company that makes running products that I really like. Again, you know me. I'm too honest to be an influencer. I have no affiliation with these companies whatsoever. And chances are I never will. I'm not exactly the poster child for modern, uh, uh, you know, what do you, whatever you call it, influencers. You know, it's a miracle that Blurb still keeps me around. I also love a company called Path Projects, P-A-T-H, Path Projects. I have two of their hoodies, which I was given as a Christmas present. I was given one. My wife was given another. Hers didn't fit her, and so she was going to get rid of it, and I tried it on, and hers fit me as well. And they are their hoodies are fantastic, and they are the perfect they're too, uh, for me, they're t- almost too nice to run in. I don't want to ruin them. I'll run in like a burlap sack. These things I wear when I'm traveling, and they are super thin and incredibly comfortable and really well-made. And I also bought a pair of their running shorts and a liner that goes inside the running shorts. And their running shorts and the liner, they make a pair that kind of looks like normal shorts, like shorts you could wear to whatever, anything, 
but they're still running shorts, and that's the one I bought because I already had the short, short thing, the bright orange short shorts. I already had that covered. And so most of their stuff is black, gray, or white. And uh, so I'm, now I'm looking at their baseball hats. They make a hat that's like all mesh for running, which I could probably use, and a beanie. I figured if their beanie is as good and as warm as their hoodie, then that would probably be a good thing for me in Santa Fe in the winter because I have a couple of beanies now. I have an AG23. It's not really a beanie. It's a winter hat, so it's too heavy, too thick to run in. And then I have this really thin beanie that I wear that's so thin it's not really warm at all, and it's also getting stretched out and doesn't stick to my head anymore, so I need something new. So I might look at Path Projects. I, like, I really like what they're doing. That's it for this, uh, for what it's worth. Here we are. We're an hour and four minutes in. I am staring at a bag of uh, super sour Scandinavian swimmers. We have a little dinner thing I have to do tonight. I've got to go turn this film around, and I've got to start working on a new program for Blurb. So uh, it is a busy day. I hope everyone out there is doing okay. And let's just revisit the first point I made on this, on this podcast. There is such a thing called a fact. And sometimes we have to take our emotion out of it. We have to take our environment out of it. We have to take our history out of it. We have to take the influences on our lives out of it. For example, my father was very influential in my life, but his views and my views are very different. And if I just went through life adapting the views that he had, I would not be where I'm at right now. I just simply would not be. They were too limiting, too structured, too hardline, and just too from one direction. And so we just have to remove ourselves from this and get back to the ability to just look at what's real in front of us, what's factual, what's been verified, and base our decision-making on that. That's it. That's where we need to be. My phone is ringing. I must go.